We're in our, I think this is our fourth week of, of our series, Am I Doing This Right? And just want to welcome you into it. If you're just joining uh, this series, let me give you a really quick uh, explanation of what we're doing. Um, so basically, this is a question that runs through my head often. Uh, I think it's a question that throughout our life, no matter how old you are, is a question we're asking. Am I doing this right? Whether it's our job, whether it's relationships, whether it's a friendship, am I doing this thing right? And I, and, I, and I honestly believe that this bleeds into our faith more than we want to admit maybe sometimes. Am I doing this right? Am I following Jesus right? And so I want to give a couple quick definitions, just like I said, in case you haven't been here. Uh, the first one is this. The this in am I doing this right is biblical discipleship and following Jesus. That's what we're talking about in this series, is what does it look like to follow Christ? What should I be seeing feeling, experiencing, like what, what, like what am I experiencing? What's happening? Am I doing this right? And this is simply discipleship. And the next word is I want to define disciple because that's kind of a churchy word. And if you didn't grow up in church, you may have never heard that word before. Like in its simplest form, disciple is just a student and a learner. Someone who is sitting at the feet of Jesus learning because he is the master teacher. And so in this process of answering this question, We've covered several things, and tonight I want to move on to our next uh, kind of guidepost along this path as we travel down this hike. And so here's what I want to start with tonight. I want to, how many of you guys growing up uh, when you were little, either you or maybe a sibling were a, what we call a screamer? You know what I'm talking about? How many of you were the screamer? Something didn't go right, you were the screamer. How many of you knew a screamer? Okay, you're probably more of you are screamers probably than you actually want to believe. Well, right now, in my, uh, in my house, we have a screamer. Um, and it's kind of a, just a phase they go through, but right now, he, um, he has a, golly, a scream of what might sound like a pterodactyl. When anything, the smallest of things does not go his way. And inevitably, we get almost the exact same story almost every time. So what will happen is he will come running into the house, tears. Like, if you didn't know him, you would think he was somehow dying internally. Like, that kind of emotion is being shown. And there's just screaming. The kind of, you just cover your ears. It's like in your high school pep assembly when it was like just the girl's side time to cheer. You're like, oh, that's painful. Like, that kind of scream. Um, and Inevitably, we're like, well, buddy, what's going on? And, and he goes into this big story about how he was wronged and how someone you know, flicked his ear the wrong way or something that leads to the, the end line every time. So-and-so did this, and it didn't make me happy. <laughs> That's how he explains it almost every time. This happened, and it didn't make me happy. And then it's usually followed with, they crushed my soul. <laughs> like, a little dramatic in our house. Uh, but I always find it interesting that the line he always ends with is, and that didn't make me happy. And I only share that quick story because I think some of us were that screamer, right? And we know that feeling of just inner rage. And you're like, this is not happening for me. You know, and when you're little, you just scream. That's how you communicate. But I think what, and, and this is the blessing of, 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 of being around kids in my life, is I get to see human nature in its most raw form. Like, there are no filters. They're not old enough to filter anything out. It's just there. And so 
one of the things that we talk about with him is, why are you always chasing happy? Like, what is that? Because I don't think it's a wrong feeling. We all feel that. We all want to be happy. I'm like, this is not a talk tonight where it's like, hey, follow Jesus, be miserable, because that's what the Bible says. In fact, tonight we're going to talk the opposite. We're going to talk about and look at scripture that says, this is how you are to be happy. This is how you get happiness. This is how you get contentment and fulfillment. But it's in our bones to chase happy. That's what we want. Like I, I think it's a pretty safe phrase to say that we make almost every decision that isn't made for us on two things, one out of fear and one out of chasing happy. This will make me happy. I'm not going to do that because I'm scared of that because if I do that, I won't be happy, right? I think it's a pretty safe general filter that we run our lives through. And it's the foundation of kind of who we are as humans. And so tonight... We're going to look at how God's word is the foundation to happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Not how the world looks at happiness, but how God says to find happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalms chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, it's basically right in the middle of your Bible. If you just kind of open it up right in the middle, you'll find Psalms and then go to your left. We're going to be in Psalms 1. And Psalms is a wisdom book uh, in the Bible, meaning it's, it's not a narrative. It's more of, uh, it's actually a lot of poetry. And it's written from uh, the perspective of David. Uh, David didn't write every bit of it, but he wrote a vast majority of Psalms. And so we're going to be in Psalms 1 tonight. So let's read. Psalms chapter 1. We're just going to read the whole thing. It's six verses. It's not very long. So here we go. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So my first point tonight is this. The blessed life requires us to align with God's word. Oh, sorry, I skipped. There we go. There we go. The blessed life requires us to align with God's word. Let's read this verse one more time. Just verse one. We're actually only going to get to three verses tonight. Verse one says this, blessed, let's stop there. That word in the Hebrew is the word esher. And the word esher means the idea of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. And so I think I grew up in a church world where um, I was told time and time, it's not about your happiness, it's about holiness, and I'm like, okay, but I want to be happy. Is that okay? <laughs> like, I want, I want to laugh. Is laughing biblical? Like, is that okay? You're like, that's the kind of world I grew up in. I, I was, I, I, at a young age, am I doing this right? Can I laugh? Can I, does God want me to be happy? Does he want me to enjoy the existence I have on this earth while I'm here? Well, Psalm 1 picks this idea up. That word blessed is the Hebrew word esher, and it means happiness or contentment, fulfillment. And so they start off, uh, 
David starts off here with kind of a bad news, good news situation. You guys ever been in those situations where someone walks in and is like, well, I got some good news and I got some bad news. What do you want first? Well, David's going to give us the bad news first. So here we go. He gives us three things right off the bat. He says, blessed is the man, and you're thinking, who does what? Oh, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I love the Bible because the longer you sit with it and the more you um, just take your time and start looking up certain words and figuring out what does this mean, it starts to come alive, okay? And so hopefully tonight you're going to see a little bit of that. And so what, what happens here is David gives us uh, three, I'm not, Zach, you're going to have to take over this clicker. I'm not doing a robot tonight. Three warnings. The first one is this. Do not walk in their counsel. The wicked, the ungodly. And this is the thinking part of who we are, okay? So if you watch the progression here, we go from walking to standing to sitting. And so David's drawing attention to the direction of their life. They've chosen a direction. At first they were just walking, and then they were standing, and then they were sitting. I'm not going to sit. It takes me too long to get up. But you see the progression. Walking, standing, sitting. And the first one here is do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Did you guys ever think or just really ruminate on the idea that ungodly people have just as much advice as godly people? That our world, everyone has opinions, everyone has advice. I wonder if we have any sort of process to work through and filter out what is godly advice and what is ungodly advice. Do we ever even ask that question? When someone tells us, well, you should think about this, or you should try that, or you should go here, or do that, or do we ever stop for a minute and just say, whoa, whoa, let me think here. Is that wise, godly counsel? Because according to Psalm 1, verse 1, the wicked also have counsel. And I think the heart behind this is saying, not only do I hear it, but I accept the advice of those who are not godly, the wicked. And so I think it's good for us to ask What's my filter for discernment? What is my discernment filter? What do I run this stuff through? Like when I was a high school pastor, I had one goal. By the time somebody came in as a freshman and graduated as a, as a senior in high school, it wasn't super huge. It wasn't uh, earth shattering, but it was life changing. If we could get students by the time they graduated to simply ask the question, what does the Bible say about this? Then you know what? We've done our job. Because they're looking for a Christian worldview. They're hearing the world and they're filtering it out through scripture. And that first one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then number two, we stand in their way. And this is our behavior. The first is our thinking, what's going on in our head. We're listening to their advice, and now we're standing in their, what is this? In your Bible, it may say path or way. In mine, it says in the way of sinners, in the direction that they are going. This is my behavior. I've taken in their advice, I've thought about it, and now I'm doing it. This speaks of the direction of our life. And then thirdly, he warns us not to sit with them. Sit with the scoffers. That's belonging. That's accepting the attitude of the scoffer. And if you wonder what is a scoffer, because we don't use that term these days, but we see it all over the place. 
Like scoffers like the favorite pastime of American social media people. Right? Because the scoffer simply looks at the things of God, the people of God, makes fun and laughs at those things. Says that's foolishness. That's the scoffer. And so you see right here in the very first verse, David is giving a little roadmap of not what not to do to find happiness, fulfillment, and contentment. It is to walk and listen to the advice of the world. And for sure, don't listen to it and then start doing it. And then on the end of it, we just sit with them and say, you know what? This is where I belong. Simply put, the psalmist is talking about your individual choice of allegiance and alignment. We've talked about this before at the gathering. Where does your allegiance lie and where are you aligned? Alignment means to bring into the same line. I know it's brain, brain, uh, rocket science here. It just seems like, who are you aligned with? And whether you know it or not, whether I know it or not, there are some things that I'm aligned with that I have made sure I want to align with that. But there are a lot of other things that we have aligned ourselves with that we have no idea we've actually done that. So the bottom line is the psalmist is talking about your individual choice of allegiance and alignment that, that you make and that you live out So he starts off the Psalms warning us in the very first verse that there is advice, there is a way of living, and there is an attitude that is in direct opposition to God and in direct opposition to the blessed life, happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. Because a lot of us are like my son. Like we're running to all these other things to try and chase happiness and to, and to run away from fear. Like we do this, this is what we do. This is what the advertising world is all about, right? Every advertisement is trying to convince you of several things. One, that you're not good enough. Two, that if you have what we have, then you will be happy. And so we invest, we go buy that thing because we want happiness. And the psalmist right here is saying, whoa, let's start out with a warning. Proverbs 14, 12 speaks to this very same thing. Solomon says it. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way of death. If this rings familiar, we see Jesus talk about it in Matthew chapter seven. This says, wide is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road that leads to life. And so this concept we see in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, we see it in the Proverbs, and we see it in the New Testament in Jesus. This idea that there is a way that is in opposition to God. So the blessed life requires us to align with God's word. Secondly, the blessed life requires us to delight in God's word. Verse two says this. Again, we see this huge but right here at the beginning. But blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That word law means instruction or direction. And so it encompasses all of God's word. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now I'm going to be honest with you. Um, This is a hard one for me. Because it's hard to tell somebody, delight, do it. Delight in it. Right now, ready, one, two, three, go. Like, that's not how delight works, right? Delight is about the affections of our heart. 
the things that draw us in that we naturally want. And I don't know about you, but I know that my sinful nature does not naturally draw to delight in the things of God. It naturally runs to every other thing quickly and often. But the law of the Lord here in verse 2 stands in opposition to the counsel of the wicked. That's the, that, that's the purpose here. He started off with three warnings. He said, no, here's how you live the blessed, happy, content, fulfilled life. Don't do these things. But do this. It's an exclamation point. And I think he does it on purpose because I think he knows. Because if you read the Psalms, there's a lot of comfort in David because he's a lot like you and me. He rides the roller coaster of emotion. He rides the roller coaster of life. And there are great moments and there are low moments. There are doubtful moments and there are joyful moments. And I think he knows that our inclination is to first run to the things of this world for happiness, fulfillment, and contentment. Maybe it's a date. Maybe it's a ring. Maybe it's a good weekend. Maybe it's a great trip. Like we live in this world that just, and we've talked about this either in here or Sunday school, time and time again, like we live in a world that uh, manufactures discontent in your life. Like that, our whole world is built on you being discontent. Do you ever think about that? Our whole world, our whole economy is functioning on the fact that we want to make you discontent with your life. And the psalmist says, no, 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 no. Here's how you do it. Found a great uh, quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It says this. Man must have some delight, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. If not filled with the best things, it will be filled up with the unworthy and the disappointing. I think he captures it really well. Like this is us. We were created to delight. We were created to worship. We were created to be in awe of something. I can prove it to you. No one comes to Oklahoma for vacation. That's how I can prove that point. Where do they go? They go to a place where they are awed. They go to the mountaintops and they go to the beaches and they go to the islands. Wherever you go is because we want to be awed. Like there's this deep desire in us to see something amazing. There's this deep desire in us that says, there's something outside of me that I want to delight in because I know that I am not the end all be all. And so there has to be something else out there that can come into here to fulfill me. You see where I'm going here? Like there's this urge inside that says, there is something outside of myself that I need to find happiness, contentment, and fulfillment in. So I will spend money, I will go on vacations, I will take Instagram pictures that make my life look awesome. Like I will do everything I can to find fulfillment and contentment and joy and happiness in something outside of me. And what does Jesus say? Here's what he says. I will come into you and then you will find joy and happiness and contentment and fulfillment when you live out the life that I have called you and made you to live. We were created to delight we were created to worship. All you got to do is go to a football game, go to a concert. We are looking to worship something. 
It could be pouring rain. It could be 50 degrees outside, pouring rain. And there will be 80,000 people in Norman for a football game. We were created to be in awe of something, to be a part of something that is bigger than just us. This is how God made us. And that makes sense because then all of a sudden the only thing that will satisfy us is him. And I wonder if sometimes living the American Christianity that we do, we have lost the awe of God. Oh, it's just another church service. And it's just another Bible study. It's just another small group. It's just another Sunday school class. It's just another quiet time. Have we lost the awe of a God who has created you took nine months to put you together, who created a universe that we, we can't even see the end of yet. Have we lost the awe? And we just try and fill it in with cheap replacements, a good time, a fun weekend. You see, if a person delights in something, you don't have to beg them to do it or like it. They will do it by themselves. You can measure your delight for the word of God. Because right, what does it say? Delight in God's word. The, the, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You can measure your delight for the word of God by how much you hunger for it. Now, that sounds like, man, Andy, that's rough. Because, guys, I'm right there with you. Like, that's a hard statement to hear. I can measure my delight in God's word according to my desire and hunger for it. And then all of a sudden, I just feel like a total failure. I'm like, I don't hunger it near as much as I probably should. I spend a lot more time on my phone finding delight in silly little games than I do marinating in God's word. C.S. Lewis has my favorite quote on this topic. It says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the street because he cannot imagine what is meant by offer of a cruise at sea. We are far too easily pleased. My son Charlie, he's my screamer by the way, He's a perfect example to me of this. <laughs> a lot of times we'll be out around town. We live out in Deer Creek. It's not really close to anything. And so we'll be late for something and, and we'll say, hey, let's run through Chick-fil-A. And on Sunday, we'll drive through Chick-fil-A. All the kids love it except Charlie. He may be adopted. I don't know. <laughs> but here's what happens every time, whether it's, whether it's Sonic or Chick-fil-A or Freddy's, like some place where we drive through and get, get dinner or lunch. We start taking orders and we're like, Charlie, do you want anything? He's like, nope. I'm like, well, what do you want? He's like, I want a PB&J. Like, well, we're not buying PB&J. We'll get that when we get home. Every time, like without fail, saves us money. It's fantastic. So we only buy for four kids. We don't buy for the fifth. We're just like, all right, when we get home. And inevitably, we forget by the time we get home. And like 20 minutes before bed, he was like, can I have dinner? Like, oh yeah. Let's get that PB&J, dude. Because it's a PB&J. It's not special. Like we, this is what we grow up on. Like it's the most American food I can think of is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Every kid grows up on them, but that's what Charlie wants. 
And I'm like, son, have you ever had a nugget from Chick-fil-A? Do you understand what you're missing? And he, no, he doesn't. Because he will not try it. Like, he won't do it. My other son, Hank, he's like the Chick-fil-A master. He lines up all the sauces, boom, 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 in. Like, he understands the joy set before him, okay? Charlie is not there yet. He's still convinced that a PB&J is the creme de la creme of his, of his uh, palate. And I think that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. He's saying we are far too easily pleased with the things of this world when we understand, when we look and understand the awe of God Almighty that we would ever skip a moment with him. Charlie and the PB&J. I know someday he will grow out of that. I hope so. But if not, he'll just save us money for a long time. Now I want to take a really quick turn here because I don't want to get too far off the text here, that the delight of the blessed man is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night. I want to turn to this odd combination of words. Is that working? No, there it is. Discipline and delight. Because this is where I live. This is me just being honest with you. This is where I live. Because I do not wake up at 5.30 a.m. every day saying, I can't wait to get in God's word. I'm going to get up early. I don't care if I'm still tired. I'm just going to get, I can't wait. That's not me. It is a struggle every day of my life to get out of bed, to wake myself up, to find a quiet place and get in God's word. It's hard. Because I'm that kid. I'm Charlie. I just want the PB&J. I think sleep is better for me than being in God's word. I think 20 extra minutes, 30 extra minutes will do more for me than meeting with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so discipline and delight. And I think we, if you're like me, you naturally cringe at the word duty or discipline when it comes to faith conversations. Because at least in my mind, I quickly go to like, oh, I don't want to be legalistic here. I don't want to like, you know, lay down the rules. And that's not what we're doing. Legalism would be you need Jesus dying on the cross, raising again, and forgiving your sins, and for you to read your Bible every day for 30 minutes for him to love you. That's legalism. It's Jesus plus is legalism. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about here is this idea that in every other area of our life, discipline is a quality that we chase after, that is lifted up, that we write on a resume, say, I am a disciplined person. Discipline's great. Ask the valedictorian how hard they worked, how they scheduled out their study time so that they could walk across the stage as valedictorian. Ask the star athlete how that discipline regimen of getting up early and doing two-a-days in August and running until you puked but they got that scholarship or they won that championship, tell me that that discipline wasn't their delight. Maybe the Olympian, like one of our, our uh, gymnasts who like moves away from her family at age seven and lives in a far off land with some strange family because she wanted to be an Olympian. And she trains every day and she watches what she eats and she makes sure she does all the right things to be disciplined in her endeavor so that she can win the gold. 
or he can win the gold. And in that moment, when you put that gold medal around their neck, their discipline becomes their delight. You see, we build disciplines and duties into our lives, not necessarily for the immediate benefit. We build duties and disciplines because it will produce future fruit that you will cherish and love and hold on to. And so if you're like me and when you read, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and you feel a little bit of guilt, like that's not me. I don't, I don't, I know I should, I want to more, but that's not me, that is okay. You're in good company. You, in fact, you're in great company. And I'll get to, I'll tell you why in just a second. But maybe tonight we come to the Bible, we come to our quiet time, we, we, we come to this, this word of God with the wrong expectation, maybe. Could we be coming to the word of God with the wrong expectation? That when I open God's word, it is gonna blow my mind every time. I don't know about you, and I'll be honest with you. Most of my quiet times, most of my time spent reading the Bible is a PB&J quiet time. It's just PB&J. I don't write home about it. I call no one because I'm not eating to get something. I'm eating God's word. I'm devouring God's word because I need it to survive. Charlie eats the PB&J not because he just thinks PB&J is the most wonderful thing in the world. It's the safest thing that he needs and he's willing to do. And so I wonder if sometimes our expectation of getting in God's word is so, I don't know, um, overblown that we think if we're doing it right, I should have an epiphany. There should be angels singing, a light shining down upon me, and that means I did it right. I don't see that in Scripture. What I see is a long process of digging deep roots in God's Word, being rooted and established, as Paul says in Ephesians. And so here's, here's what I want to offer you, maybe. Maybe we change our expectation. Maybe you change your focus when you read God's word. And instead of trying to get something from it, all right, just follow me here. We're going to walk all the way through this. Maybe instead of reading it, because I think a lot of times we read it, and like if you have ever done the inductive Bible study method, you know, like you have a task. You have some clouds to draw, some crosses to do, some underlining, some highlighting. Like it's like you got stuff to get accomplished because you have got to do it right and do it the right way so that I can get something out of it. What if we just tweak, not to say the content's not important, it's incredibly important, your theology is important, the truth of God's word is important, but what if you saw it as just communing with God? I'm gonna open up my Bible with no expectation other than just spend time with you. And for those doers in the room, the type A's, you're like, well, Andy, that sounds like a waste of time, I'm not getting anything out of it. Well, here's the deal. If you don't think you're gonna get anything out of it, that's fine. But here's the deal, what... What if we let God determine whether your quiet time was worth it instead of us? Because what if he's doing something that's longer and slower and deeper than you could ever imagine? Because we live in a world of fast food, quick, now, Amazon, two days, let's go, let's move, let's go. When I look at the God of the Bible, I see him ready for the long marathon with you. Walk with him. 
Commune with him. Like I think this is not a hard concept for us. If someone asks you out to lunch, what's generally the main goal of lunch? You know what? It's probably maybe a little bit eating, but really they just want to meet. They want to talk with you. We, we, we need to catch up. I want to spend time with you. And lunch is just a convenient way to do that. So what if our quiet times, our time in God's word, he just wants to meet with you. He just wants to be in your presence and you in his presence. Then all of a sudden, it looks more like an invitation versus a duty. I just wonder if we need to change our mind about how we think about reading the Bible. Because I think sometimes in my mind, it's got to be a steak dinner, quiet time. It's got to be a steak dinner or it's not worth doing. But here's the crazy thing about the steak dinner quiet time idea. And here's why I say steak dinner. When you have a great steak, you take the picture and put it on Instagram, right? You're like, this was amazing. Look at the potatoes. Look at the sides. Macaroni and cheese side. I mean, it's crusted on the top. It's amazing. But we can't afford that every night, right? So we do it on special occasions. And you know what? But in between the steak dinners at Mahogany or Boulevard or wherever, you still need to eat. And it may just be a PB&J, but you still need it to sustain you. I think sometimes in my mind, in my life, I've convinced myself that if it's not a steak dinner quiet time, then it's not worth having. And I think Satan would love nothing more than to convince you that you don't need to be connected to the Father on a daily basis. Because what happens if you only eat steak dinners, you are going to starve to death. You are going to be spiritually anemic. But most of the time, it's going to be a PB&J quiet time. And thank goodness it's not a steak dinner, because if it was a steak dinner every time, guess what? Eventually, it would just be a PB&J, because steak's not special anymore. But every once in a while, you're going to have a quiet time. You're going to sit down and read God's Word, and it is going to jump off the page at you. It is going to convict you. It is going to encourage you. It is going to give you life and renew your soul because of verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That is the promise of being rooted in God's word. Let me backtrack real quick. I forgot this point. Why is this not working tonight? Can you guys click forward? Thank you. If you struggle with desire and delight, I want to point you to Psalm 119, 33 through 37. And this is why I said, if you struggle with delighting yourself in God's word, you're in good company. Because later in Psalm 119, David writes this. In verse 1 or verse 33, he says, teach me your statutes. In verse 34, he says, give me understanding. In verse 35, he says, lead me in your path. In verse 36, he says, incline my heart to your word. What is he saying? God, I want to want you. It's that song, I want you to want. Like that song. Like that's, a, that's what David's saying. I want to want you, Lord. Incline my heart to you. Lead me. Teach me. And then lastly, he says, turn my eyes from worthless things. Guys, there's just some things that you can't will your way into. 
You need what Marty talked about last week, the Holy Spirit to do something in you and change you, change your affections, change what you desire and change what you delight in. And so if you're like me and you struggle with verse two and say, I don't delight naturally, that's not my natural bent, then pray that God would change you and bring you to a place where you delight in his word. That is a prayer he will answer every single time but it just may require you to first step, step foot into discipline that will eventually turn into delight. Build the discipline of devoting daily. Ask God to meet you there and watch your delight grow. My last point tonight is in verse three, which I just read. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does, he prospers. Will you click to the next one, Zach? The last one is we need to marinate in God's word. Some of you have heard this story before, but I'll share it again for those of you who haven't. I grew up in Iowa. Um, and I grew up, I know there's a lot of food talk tonight, but so we got food afterwards, so just bear with me. We're almost done. I grew up in Iowa, and bless my mother's heart, she did not know how to cook steak, pork chops, chicken. No meats were good in my house. Like, I left my house after high school hating steak, hating chicken, and hating pork chops, anything like it, because it was like eating rubber. And here's why. Because she didn't ever marinate the meat. And so she would put it on her plate, I'm like, oh, steak. And we would just, where's the ketchup? And just, just cover it in ketchup to try and get some sort of moisture in there. Like I was famous in my house for like sitting in the table for two hours, chewing on food to try and get it down. I grew up hating steak because there was no flavor. There was no tenderness. There was nothing. It was just a piece of hard, tough meat. And then I got to college and heard some of my roommates say, hey, let's go get a steak. I'm like, why would you, What? Why would you pay money for that? And they're like, what? They looked at me like I had three eyes, rightly so. And then I moved to Oklahoma and had my very first good steak at age 25. And I had this moment, and it was just like, oh, dear Lord. I've been abused as a child. I had no idea what a filet mignon tasted like, let alone what it was marinated and made medium rare? Like, I had no idea. I only know no marinade and, me and uh, well done. That's what I grew up with. But verse three of Psalm chapter one gives this idea of marinating, of planting deep roots, letting God's word soak into you. Because the point of a root is to absorb and grow. So when it says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and, uh, and its leaves do not wither and all that he does, he prospers. He's saying, listen, you who plant yourself in delight in God's word, you plant yourself in God's word, you soak up God's word, you marinate in God's word, you will be like the tree planted by water. You will be alive and you will bear fruit. You'll be fulfilled. You'll be content and you'll be happy. 
We see this in Psalm 34, 8, where Solomon says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Marinate in God's word. Don't just read it. Don't just skim over it to check it off the list. Marinate in it. Make a concerted effort to find time and a place to get away, turn the phone off, and marinate in it. Whatever you're reading, read it four or five times. Write it down. You should never study God's word without a notebook. Ever. Write it down. Write it over and over and marinate in it. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you, marinate in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Ezra 7.10 says, for Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He absorbed it and then he observed it and then he taught it. Let me give you a quick word picture. The tree in, the, in this story, he is like a tree, is the believer. The believer is a living organism. That tree is alive, which absorbs the water that flows past it. It's not stagnant water. It's not polluted water. It is running water. For you OSU fans, it is still water, right? I know, bad joke, bad joke. But that water is God's word. The tree is a living organism which absorbs the water to produce in due time something new, delightful, and beautiful, and that's a transformed life. We are the trees, he is the water, and the fruit is what he does in your life. And he will do it whether you try to or not as long as you're rooted in him. Like I said, I live out this way. And I grew up in Iowa. And so I've been surrounded by a lot of fields my whole life. Cornfields, wheat fields. But there was always one thing that you would see in every field. It was this tiny, thin row of trees that would run straight through a field. And you're like, well, that's weird. Until you realize why. Do you know why? It's where the stream of water is. And that's where the tree grows. It's not in the middle of the field. Right next to the living water. So why is this important? Two things, really quick. One, it's important to marinate in God's word. It's important to delight in God's word and to pray for that delight and to align ourselves with God's word. Here's why it's important. One, yes, to have a blessed life, to be happy and content and fulfilled. Root yourself, plant yourself, marinate in God's word every day. Devote daily. That's one reason. The second reason is because we are surrounded by people seeking fulfillment and happiness every day. Our world is seeking it. They're killing themselves seeking it. They're driving themselves crazy seeking it. And Christians, here's the real deal. We are the Bibles that this world is reading. We are the sermons that this world is hearing. And we are the evidence of God's grace that this world is needing. So we cannot afford to claim the cross of Christ and not be marinating and grounded and rooted in his word because you are the Bible to them. You are the only sermon they'll ever hear. 
And you are the representation of God's grace that they desperately need. And so if I'm living my life out of my own energy and my own opinions and my own thoughts and my own selfishness and my own insecurities and my own fears, guess what they're going to see? A Christian who's no different than them. But when I'm grounded and marinated in God's word, they are going to see a life that is blessed, that is content and fulfilled and happiness that they cannot explain and nor can you outside of Christ. We cannot afford to claim Christ as our Lord and Savior and not be marinating, grounded, and rooted and established in his word. We can't afford not to walk in the counsel of our God, stand in the way of the righteous, and sit at the feet of our Savior. It's just the opposite of verse 1. We can't afford it. We've got to walk in his counsel, we've got to walk in his way, and we've got to sit at his feet. And I know it's hard. I mean, we are distracted. I, I, for this whole talk, I looked up all these stats on distraction, and it's amazing what the average intelligence, or uh, um, uh, what's it called, uh, attention span, that's what I'm thinking of. It's only like 20 seconds. Like the average American has an attention span of 20 seconds. And so, of course, it's going to be hard. That's why we need discipline. Discipline yourself. Find some friends. Find a couple guys. Find a couple guys and say, you know what? Let's set our alarms together. Let's get up together. Let's text each other. Let's do the discipline of getting in God's word so that it will turn into our delight. And then you will live a blessed life. As we finish up, I always do this, so what? One truth and two questions. Here they come. Number one, the truth that you need to know tonight is aligning with Delighting and marinating in God's word is the foundation of a blessed life. Aligning with, delighting and marinating in God's word is the foundation of a blessed life. That is the truth of God's word from Psalm chapter one. My two questions that I would ask for you tonight to to, to chew on. Number one, what am I believing that keeps me from devoting daily to God's word? What am I believing? And typically, you're believing a lie. I know I am. The lie that 30 minutes of more sleep is better than. I can get through my day fine without. Those are the lies I believe that cause me not to get in God's word because I believe something other than the gospel is all that I need. And that he is the one that brings purpose and truth and fulfillment and contentment and joy and happiness. That if I just watch five episodes of this show on Netflix tonight, I'll be happy, right? I mean, come on, we all do that. So what am I believing that keeps me from devoting in God's word daily? And then lastly, and this is a personal question for you, because it's not going to be the same for the person sitting next to you. How do I respond in obedience to the truth of Psalm chapter 1? How do I respond in obedience to the truth in Psalm chapter one? That the biblical life requires us to align ourselves with God's word, delight in God's word, and marinate in God's word. So as we've done the last couple weeks, we're gonna go into our 120 seconds. And this is just a time for you to sit with those two questions. Pray, journal, write on the back of your note card, but you do some work with the Lord. Ask him, 
approach his throne of grace with these questions. God, what lies am I believing? What does it mean for me to be, respond in obedience here? So we're gonna give you 120 seconds just to sit, you and the Lord, and, and, and have some time. So let me pray, and then we'll go into that. Heavenly Father, we just wanna thank you for your word. God, thank you for the words of David that not only instruct us, but encourage us, that gives us a hope that the blessed life, the happiness, the contentment, and the fulfillment that we, ch- the fulfillment that we chase is only found in you. And you have been so gracious to us to give us your word, to give us a book that we can open that is so accessible to us that we forget it. God, you are so gracious to give it to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work in us, that you would increase our desire and our delight for your word, that you would give us a hunger that we may not currently have, that you would show us the fruit that you're, that you're producing in our life from it. God, I pray in these next 120 seconds you would do some work in your son's name, amen.